right? Some stones saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul. I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you. I went wandering Like a Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. And I'm your host, Sean McCraney. I'm surrounded by a beautiful, handsome family from Southern California, Laguna Hills, California. It's Joe and Carol and Courtney and Ashley Ducanel. And now I got to tell you a quick story. My parents had their 50th wedding anniversary a few years ago. And I went to this with my family and there, there was a young girl there who was dating my nephew. And I went to go get a drink of punch and she came up and she said, I want you to know I really love your show. And I said, you do? This was in Southern California. She said, my mom loves it. My mom loves it. And it happened to be Courtney here, and she was dating my nephew, who is now on an LDS mission. And so this is a good Christian family. I, I am told that Carol loves, she's the biggest fan we have in Southern California. And uh, she dresses up as me on Halloween. Just kidding. Total joke. Uh, but we love you guys. Any message you'd like to, to give to the listening audience? Um, well, it's funny how God works, just meeting you and through everything like that. But I just want to encourage you, any LDS out there, to just get into the New Testament. That's, that's the biggest thing. Don't get so caught up in, you know, anti-Mormon sites or anything, but just study it yourself because that's what I did. I was never LDS, but I was looking into it. And, man, if I didn't look for it, for myself, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have found the truth, and I am so blessed to just um, see how God has worked in my life through the study of the New Testament and the Old Testament, but the Bible is so valid, and I just hope that you can see that for yourself. Praise God. Yeah. Anything else <laughs> from the family? They're say, they're, well, go ahead, Joe. I just felt called to bring the family out to Salt Lake City and to see Sean's show, and I would encourage all of you to come out and see the show if you have, a, have the opportunity. Joe, he gets, <laughs> he gets a check in the mail for that. <laughs> and, and listen, you guys, um, my, my older brother, he passed away, and he has five children, and one of them is his youngest son, and that is who Courtney was dating. And so she had a profound influence on him, and so we pray that while he's out there, his eyes will be open, ears will be unplugged, and he'll come to know the truth. So we thank you. We love you guys. Thank Thanks you. for being on. Thank you. Okay. We praise the true and living God for allowing us to participate in this ministry. May he be with you and us. 
Uh, tonight, Heart of the Matter can be seen right now from anywhere in the world by going to HOTM. Uh, .tv and watching live streaming video. You can also watch on our archives any past program. Uh, cold weather means cold people out on the streets. It's pretty cold here in Utah now. Join us uh, as we support the Salt Lake Rescue Mission who feeds and clothes the homeless. How can you help bring new socks, the ones still wrapped in those plastic bags uh, from the store and new or nearly new winter coats for males or females here to the station between 9 a.m and 3 p.m. Monday through Friday, and we'll take them in bulk over to the mission in, on your behalf. So far, we've had great success with a number of people going out and getting and bringing things in, so we really appreciate it. Praise God. Hey, we do church on Sundays. I, oh, look at my, <laughs> uh, we do church on Sundays. It's totally deconstructed. It's based on the word. Uh, both in instruction and in song. It's low-key, open, and full of interactive fellowship. We meet at 10 a.m. We call that milk. 2.30 p.m. We call that meat. Want more information? Go to www.campus.com, and there's a hyphen between all the letters, C-A-M-P-U-S. Uh, Christian Gift and Bible, a great Christian bookstore that's been around for 13 years in the state, is going out of business. They're at 8740 South, 700 East. Nearly every item uh, in the store is on sale between 10 and 70% off. Uh, Christian Gift and Bible, the sale will be going on for, uh, through the month, this month and the month of January. Uh, we appreciate George and the service he has rendered in, in, in really a heartfelt service. Uh, to the people of Utah, Salt Lake Valley, uh, with his bookstores. Uh, we speaking of bookstores, we had a book signing at Lifeway Books in Murray last Saturday. It was great seeing everybody who came out. We appreciate Robert, the manager, setting that up. The book signing was our of what our latest book, um, Mormonism A to Z, is what we're calling it for short, and it uh, delineates the differences between Mormonism and biblical Christianity. The problem is the first printing is gone, sold out. Uh, the only place you can get one actually now is at the uh, Lifeway Christian Bookstore there in Murray on State Street. So, uh, and their supply is limited too. We are going to have um, another thousand in stock toward the end of January. So, uh, but in terms of the first 300, which we sent out and we offered as a discount for Christmas and all that, those are gone. If you, but if you want to check Lifeway uh, Christian Bookstore on State Street, you might find them there. We also offer a product called a Mormon President. It's a video that is excellent information. Take a look. Is America ready for a Mormon president? I would love to see Mitt Romney go to the White House. Yes, I think America is ready for a Mormon president. No way a Mormon is going to get in the White House. The odds of him being elected president are zero. What happened when the Mormon prophet Joseph Smith ran for president? If America knew the power seeking that was in Joseph that continues to be in the LDS church today, they would be very frightened to have a Mormon president. Was there a political conspiracy to murder Joseph Smith? Is anti-Mormon prejudice still alive and well in America today? I've gotten several comments of like, you're a Mormon and you're in a cult. Their doctrine does not reflect Christian teaching as we understand it. It makes me crazy if somebody ever accuses me of not being Christian. And the name of the church says it all right there. Why are Americans in such disagreement about the Mormon church? They would love to take over the world, and I think they believe that they will someday do it. There's a lot of rumors out there, and most of them without basis. 
every single thing connected to Mormonism is a byproduct of the embodiment of Joseph Smith. He had been dragged from his home in an effort to kill him, and a Protestant minister was a member of that mob. Today, Protestant leaders reject Joseph Smith as a false prophet. You can't understand the challenge facing Mitt Romney until you know the untold story of Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. Explore the controversy surrounding Joseph Smith and the Mormon quest for the White House. Prophet of God, polygamist, politician, who was Joseph Smith? Joseph Smith is a puzzle. Larger than life. I would say Christ-like. It would have to be charlatan. He was a mighty prophet. A mighty prophet of God. Join the debate, the drama. Make your decision. Is America ready for a Mormon president? A Mormon president and other products can be uh, obtained by going to www.hotm.tv. Listen up. Two important and fun events coming up. Ready? First, beginning in January of 2012, Aletheia Ministries is going to begin airing a new television program. No, Heart of the Matter is not leaving. We will still be doing Heart of the Matter live here every Tuesday night, God willing. But we are uh, going to be producing a new program aimed at reaching uh, people that uh, we haven't been able to reach here on Heart of the Matter. the name of the show is going to be The X-Files, The X-Files, and it will be hosted by Bishop Earl with each program focusing on you. And so your story of being a former member of the LDS Church and how you came out to discover the truth about it, the process you underwent, and how you came to a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were once LDS and are now a born-again Christian, we invite you to contact us by going to www.xmormonfiles.tv. It's on the screen right there, xmormonfiles.tv. Don't fear, don't think, you don't have anything to say. One of the best things other LDS can hear are personal stories. We've come to realize that. And uh, this isn't necessarily a venue being a live call-in show, but Bishop Earl is a perfect person, we believe, to kind of facilitate that. And so we need you to contact us and say, hey, this is my story. I want to be interviewed. And you do that by going to www.xmormonfiles.tv. Now, for the second announcement, this is going to be really fun. Two days after Christmas, December 27th, a Tuesday night, we will be taping our 300th program, a 90-minute special. Uh, What a ride it has been, folks, and we invite all of our fans to join us here at the studio for a celebration. Seating is limited, so get here early, like no later than 7 p.m. to get a seat and uh, get ready to celebrate with what we think is going to be a great uh, 90-minute Festivus celebration. Uh, Now, there will be door prizes and giveaways. There'll be food. There'll be fellowship. But let me tell you the lineup we have of of guests who are going to be appearing, special guests. I'm going to do it alphabetically just so that I'm fair. We're going to have Bishop Earl. We're going to have Marv Cowan. We have Doris Hansen, Rowney Higley, Bill McKeever, Tim Oliver, Andy Poland, uh, Rob Savolka, and Sandra Tanner. All of them are going to be here. We're going to talk to them about their ministries. You know, it's because of these people 
that heart of the matter has had the success that it has had and we've been able to stay on 300 uh, shows. It's because of their pioneering work and reaching out to the LDS in every way that they can that we have been able to kind of tap into those seeds they've planted and get something going with this television program. And so we invite you to come, but make sure you get here early because once the place is full uh, of the seating we have, it's, it's, it's done. Afterward, we'll be going down to Denny's on 5th South downtown in honor of our old pastor in the pub celebrations. That's gonna happen uh, beginning at around 10.30 at night at Denny's and go till about midnight. So uh, if you need your beauty sleep, you better go home. But uh, is God good or what? It's gonna be a great evening this next Tuesday night, December 27th uh, from 8 to, 10, uh, 8 to 10 p.m. about. That's when it will be going on. I said get here early. Uh, how about a moment from the Word? Last week we talked about the Jesus' first miracle at Cana, turning water into wine. We said how Mormonism uh, has taught for, for many years, centuries, that this wedding was actually the uh, setting for Jesus' own marriage to none other than Mary. But let's talk a minute about the miracle itself that Jesus performed there. What made this first miracle so amazing was not only the fact that Jesus turned water into wine, but that in a short period of time, listen, in a very short period of time, he turned water into fermented alcohol for consumption by those who were at the wedding. Uh, did you hear that? Jesus made alcohol for the people at the wedding to drink. Now, a lot of people say, well, that was a different time. Drinking uh, wasn't as dangerous because of civilization and its discontents. Uh, and today, alcohol is far more destructive, so we shouldn't drink it. And let me tell you something. I am a proponent of, of not drinking. I don't think drinking alcohol necessarily does anything for you. And not getting drunk, I'm not for that whatsoever. But back when Jesus was alive, I would suggest that drinking was far more deleterious than it is today. Why? Uh, there was not much around by way of um, modern medicine, Painkillers, cures for common ailments, disease run amok, poverty was everywhere, the standard of living for most was lousy, and alcohol was far more uh, dangerous for people to, be, to abuse and use it then than it is now as we have so many entertainments that can, and so much information and so many other things that can keep us from it. But we don't think that way normally. We think we have cars today, we have machinery, and so we can't we can't drink, and the LDS used those arguments to say, you know, if Jesus did do anything with alcohol, it was a re really weak table wine, and we just don't do it today because it is so dangerous. You gotta think about this stuff before you accept other men's warped realities. Anyway, what made this miracle so amazing was fermentation takes time. And he was able to take water and not only produce grape juice, but have it ferment in that instantaneous period of time. The fact that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, not only turned the water into fermented wine, but also drank it. Remember the Pharisees called him a wine bibber. That means he was someone who drank wine. In both areas, the marriage setting and the type of wine that Jesus created, um, 
is, is counter to what the uh, Mormons teach about it. And um, the Bible is completely clear on what happened in those things, but the LDS, once again, uh, their perspective is weighed and found wanting and filled with the doctrines of man. So, okay, with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father God, we seek you, we seek your wisdom and will and not ours. We pray you will open eyes and ears tonight, bless our audiences wherever they may be, help me to articulate the things you want, and uh, we pray for this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, uh, we talked about all the events of June 1828, with the most monumental event of that month being Joseph Smith losing track of the first 116 pages translated from his golden book. Prior to June of 1828, Joseph had not made any serious claims that the Book of Mormon was a new revelation from God, although he certainly included some religion in it for Martin Harris's sake. And he had certainly not called himself a prophet or a seer or a revelator up to that point. But the trials of June of 1828 brought the con man to the forefront of all he had previously been. And having been called out and challenged, he had to make a serious change of direction in the way he was seen by others and the direction of the book that he had first started out to uh, author. It was here that Joseph shapeshifted, uh, in my opinion, from being a treasure-seeking con man to a prophet. And the, book of, um, and the book of American history that he was creating was becoming now a book of scripture in the rewrite. I would strongly suggest that real Mormonism truly began from June of 1828 and uh, forward, and that all the stories, claims, and written accounts and visions prior to that were sheer fabrications, much of it being created years after the fact. Of course, most everything after June of 1828 was a fabrication too. So this includes his priesthood restoration, the Doctrine and Covenant revelations, the Pearl of Great Price translation, the Kinderhook Plates farce, and the practice of polygamy, all farces too. But these things happened and were fabricated in present time as Joseph Smith went along. But everything before 1828, June of 1828, was fabricated afterward retroactively. All the stuff Mormonism claimed happened before June of 1828 in terms of supporting the Mormon story, most of it, like the first vision, the description of Joseph Smith's boyhood life, visitations from angels, and the chronology of the Book of Mormon were made up uh, in in retrospect. So in my opinion, real early, morning, real early Mormon history began in June of 1828. And in the months that followed, Joseph began to greatly enhance and expand um, upon the religious side of this forthcoming book, even to the point of now calling it scripture. It was not known as going to be as being scripture prior to June of 1828. Was the fact that he almost lost his wife or the fact that he, uh, his wife gave birth to a stillborn, highly deformed son, did that play into this? I'm sure it contributed to it. Was the loss of the 116 pages something that was a major uh, contributor? I think it certainly was. Joseph was trapped with that. He had to do something about it. But I would suggest that all of this was seasoned by Joseph's disdain for Christianity that he had witnessed around him as a boy. 
the Christianity that recently refused to receive him in his time of need, the Christianity that had a pastor tell his mother that his older brother Alvin went to hell because he wasn't baptized, I would suggest that these first-hand experiences with supposed Christianity at the time led Joseph to say, at this point in his life, enough of these cold-hearted bastards and their abominable institutions, that's how he described Christianity later in his life, abominable institutions, uh, I'm going to show them, I'm going to show anyone who will listen who God really is. And he embarked on a new clear mission reforming biblical Christianity by injecting it with concepts created entirely by his imagination. Uh, I would go so far to suggest that at this point in Joseph's life, he might have actually hated God and losing all of his fear of the divine that once held him bound as a result of his mom being very religious on him when he was young, he found himself free humanistically speaking, and able to completely embrace whatever he wanted to be true. It was as if he said within himself, if God's supposed people, these Christians, are going to treat others so badly and fight among themselves, and if God is going to treat me so badly, threatening the life of my wife, sending me a dead, deformed son, I will form my own people. Ones who want more civility in their life. Ones who want more humanity. More heaven here on earth. And less hell here and less hell threatened in the hereafter. I can almost hear him say between the lines of his quotations, I have so little fear of God at this point in my life, I am now willing to speak for him without any hesitation. And in his name, I'm going to create a fresh and new religion based on any compilation uh, that I can gather from my own worldviews. And at this point, I would suggest a new Joseph Smith was born, a Joseph who had not one whit of fear of speaking for God on any and every subject imaginable, a Joseph Smith who opened himself to whatever forces and powers that be and went from being a member of a dirt poor mystical family, backwooded, from being a filthy treasure seeker, convicted, to being, from being a nobody, to becoming the prophet. So after losing the 116 pages in June of 1829, Joseph returned to Harmony, Pennsylvania, and at that time, he began to refer to himself as a revelator, as a seer, and as a prophet. He would grow in this capacity, as would his doctrines, with each and every year taking him and his revelations further and further away from the biblical tenets opposed, imposed upon him as a child. With each passing year bringing him closer to the place that almost every self-proclaimed charismatic prophet ends up, totally absorbed in their own egoism. David Koresh went there. Uh, Jim Jones went there. Joseph was not one bit different. So he returned to Palmyra after he tried to find the 116 pages, and Emma was waiting there. He was at an impasse. He had once straddled the chasm of some religious leanings to please Harris, and he was going to attempt to provide the world with a fictitious history of the Americas. Uh, but now he had to go further. To separate himself from his past and push himself into a new role— one that could not be challenged as easily as being able to see into a stone for treasure. And within weeks of returning home in July of 1828, Joseph Smith Jr. 
received his first revelation. In it, he spoke for God and had the Lord God of heaven and earth chastise him for losing the 116 pages and revoking his translation privileges by taking away the Urim and Thummim for a season. I would suggest that the seasonal punishment conveniently gave Joseph time to create a new image and a new outline for a new and improved religious book. This approach gave Joseph a solution to the lost 116-page problem. While working on it, Joseph received his second, another revelation. In it, the Lord commanded him to not retranslate the same section of plates that he had worked upon uh, and that had supplied the world with the first 116 pages. Instead, the Lord told Joseph that those people who took those pages were going to take them and alter them so that when Joseph retranslated those same plates and showed them to them, they would, there would be a difference and they would say, see, Joseph, you're a con. Now, you got to stop and ask yourself, think about this. Why would the person or people who took or had possession of the lost 116 pages alter them? Uh, I mean, the picture is being painted that everybody around him was evil, horribly diabolical, and he was just the bearer of light. Was everyone at this stage out to get Joseph? Um, I would agree that many people thought he was a con man, and I think that they certainly would like to have proved it. But I think such people knew they could prove it just by having him supply another translation of those first 116 pages and to make a comparison. There was no need for them to try to alter pen and paper written in the 1820s. How are you going to alter that and it's not going to show that you altered it? They had no ability to do that. But you see, Martin Harris's wife knew the guy was a con. She didn't have to try to alter the original manuscript, the 116 pages. She didn't need to. All she needed to do was say, Joseph, give us another uh, translation of those same things and let's compare them. But you see, Joseph knew he, it was not true and that he was a con. And so he had to do something about that. So he received a revelation from God that said that everybody else was out to get him. They were going to change his first words and uh, he needed to do something about it. What did God command him to do? He tells him that within the golden plates themselves was another section of plates that told the same story that his first 116 pages told but they told it with a lot of detail. And God said, Joseph, go to the place and translate that section, not the original section that you did. And so you're going to come up with a completely different story, but it is going to have a lot more detail. And therefore, no one be, will be able to say that you're a con because these first 116 pages came from a different section of the plates. In fact, in the Book of Mormon, Joseph has a Book of Mormon writer say, supposedly, listen, I'm writing on these new plates. They call them the plates of Nephi. I don't know why I'm doing this and retelling the whole story again, but God has commanded me to do it. And so Joseph is going to use this ploy to use against those people who took the 116 pages, and therefore there would be no way to call him on it. Uh, the Lord tells uh, Joseph Smith in a revelation Doctrine and Covenants 10.45 this. Behold, Joseph has the Lord say in Doctrine and Covenants 10.45, there are many things engraven on the plates of Nephi which do throw greater views upon my gospel. 
Joseph received this revelation, and so here was his out. Just to make it, uh, just to explain it to you again, the first 116 pages are lost. Joseph goes back and he says, what do I do? Ah, I'll receive a revelation. And in the revelation, God says, go to another section of these golden plates where the same stories are told in the first 116 pages. But now we are going to read from these plates of Nephi that are included in here. And they're going to give you an enhanced version that expounds upon my gospel. So we can see the shift in the Book of Mormon to becoming a religious book now. In other words, a new and improved translation was going to be far more religious than the first 116, and this would certainly accomplish several things. First, it would reinforce Joseph's new position as a prophet, seer, and revelator. Second, because this book of Scripture would have greater views on Jesus' gospel, according to Joseph, he would be able to stand up to all those phony, Bible-thumping Christians out there who had been so mean to him and his family. And third, this new spiritual approach might serve to draw Martin Harris in even more because Martin Harris was so spiritually inclined. Enough buried treasure, enough following God of the Bible, enough being a secular con man, Joseph Smith, now 22 years of age, was ready to show the world he could change the world and was empowered by god knows what he set forth uh without boundaries limited only by the parameters of his own mind and his own will i would suggest at this point joseph was filled with the very same power the very same powers that drove l ron hubbard to compose dianetics that that motivated muhammad to pin the quran um, it's what produced uh, Edgar Cayce's visions, Ellen G. White's views, Charles Taz Russell's opinions, Herbert W. Armstrong's legalisms, and a litany of others who, too, growing tired of God's word and not being satisfied by what it says, choose to reduce it, alter it, expand upon it, or eliminate it altogether. We are uncertain when Joseph started back in translating on the lost 116 pages, but we do know this. The new translation commencing at this point is the Book of Mormon that the Mormons use today, except there was a whole bunch of changes in it. But this is what the Book of Mormon now was, all right? Now is. Uh, the Urim and Thummim were not used to create this book in any way whatsoever. The golden plates were not used to create this book whatsoever. And the book was dictated in two ways. First, Joseph dictated it by staring into a hat at a stone, which might have included an outline, written outline in that hat. And second, he did it without using any props at all. Some biographers said it wasn't until winter of 1828 that Joseph st uh, started uh, his trans, uh, new translation. Some say it wasn't until April of the next year of 1829 that he started in. But Joseph Smith's mother uh, in her book says that they went and they visited Joseph and Emma. And Joseph said he'd received yet another revelation. And this revelation said from God, I have again commenced translating and Emma writes for me. But the angel said that the Lord would send me a scribe and I trust his promise 
to be verified, end quote. Lucy Max Smith, Joseph's mother, wrote this in September of 1828. This was when Joseph commenced rewriting this new Book of Mormon. We'll continue with the real history of Joseph Smith and his Book of Mormonian in the weeks and months to come. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. First time callers, please, LDS callers if possible. Let's go to someone who says they're anonymous in Sandy, Utah. Anonymous, you're on Heart of the Matter. Anonymous. Hi, I, I just needed to um, ask you a question. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, when I was a young girl, I was um, baptized into the Mormon Church. And um, I decided that that, you know, was not the way that I wanted to go, even as a young child, because... Um, the missionaries that had baptized me and my brothers, um, you know, they basically came around us long enough for us to um, to become part of the church, and then they baptized us, and then they never talked to us again. So we decided as young children that that was not what we wanted. Huh. And, you know, we found that that was strange even then. Well, now where I work, um, a lot of the, the nurses that I work with, they treat um, they treat me very differently because I'm a born-in born-again Christian, and I became a born-again Christian in May of 2009, huh. and um, I've actually had nurses actually ask me um, if, you know, how do I know Jesus because I'm not, you know, Mormon, wow. and I thought that that's very strange, but I've got to be honest with you, um, I'm, like I said, I'm a born-again Christian, but now I'm finding myself being boycotted by born-again Christians as well, um, I had a, a period of time in my life just recently where I've um, had some backsliding, yeah. and um, I've gotten really angry, and I've done some things that were, that were you know, unmentionable, I guess you could say. Okay. And now I'm finding my way back to the Lord, but I feel like the people that I have acted out um, towards, you know, um, out of ungodly ways, I should say, I've asked for their forgiveness, and they don't, they don't want to extend that forgiveness to me, and they're born-again Christians as well. Hmm. I'm just wondering, is that, is that normal? Is that how we're supposed to be in the Word? Because, you know, I mean, I even read in 1 Corinthians 1.10 where it says that, you know, we're supposed to be united together in the body of Christ. Yeah. And so I'm just kind of having a hard time with that, and I wanted to... You bring up, a good, you bring up some good points. I'm going to call you Annie for Anonymous. Uh, Annie, and this is why. You asked two questions. You said, is it normative? And you said, is it supposed to be? N uh, yes, it is normative. Is it supposed to be? No, it is not. Jesus, when he describes the church, his church, which is made up of believers, he, all through the New Testament, he describes it as being a field that has good crops and wheat, uh, wheat and weeds. And he says, let them grow up together. And at the end time, the angels will come and separate them out and the weeds will be cast off. But he doesn't say, he never paints a picture of his church being filled only with real believers. He paints it as a picture, of, he says it's a, it's a tree with the fowls of the air, which are always negative in scripture, coming and filling it up. He, he paints it as a picture of someone throwing a net into the sea and they draw it into the boat and there's really good fish and there's very bad fish. And that is the picture of his church. Now, the body of Christ is made up of believers. They will and are his. But you can never, ever judge a religion by virtue of its people. 
You can't because people will always fail you, whether they're Mormon or whether they're Christian or whether they're whatever. People are people. And so if you ever hitch your wagon to the way others treat you, you're going to be so sorely disappointed almost wherever you go. So, but the thing is here, my friend and my sister, you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and you praise him in the storm and you're backsliding or you're forward sliding or you're elevation or you're falling. He loves you and loved you from the cross and he always will. He is where your salvation is. You're, now it's incumbent upon you to love those people who don't accept your uh, attitude of forgiveness. Forgive them who despitefully use you, even if they call themselves Christians. And you pursue forward in faith as a believer. Okay, does that help? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I, I really am, um, you know, I, I really feel like I know that I've backslidden and I really feel like God is, you know, showing me all the ways where I've been wrong and I don't even see, at this point, I don't even see where others have been wrong. I just see that, you know, that when I've asked for forgiveness, I don't see that it's, you know, being portrayed as, you know, as they believe me or, you know, that they even want to extend that mercy to me. It's almost like, I don't know, like they just don't believe me and they don't cares? think I'm Christian or something. And uh, it's, it's hard. It does. Yeah, I know it's hard. I, you know, I, I believe me. I know it's hard when people point the finger and say you're not a Christian or we're not going to receive you. All those things. But, you know, uh, that's not what it's about. Do you believe and do you have faith that the Lord forgave you? And because, listen, he forgave you past, present, and future of the sins you've committed 2,000 plus years ago. You're not in a state right now where he's saying, well, I'm going to wait a while before I forgive you for these recent backsliding sins. He forgave you 2011, whatever it was, years ago, 2000, less than that. Okay? And so those sins that you even fell in backslidden. He forgave. He forgave your sins that you're going to commit when you're 90 if you live to be that age and you yell at somebody out of impatience. He forgave those 2,000 years ago. And see, the other Christians sometimes forget that they're in the same boat. And so if anytime someone thinks that they are in a position to ever withhold love and total forgiveness from you, they have the greater sin then you're backsliding. So, but you can't look at them and say, you're a worse sinner than me. You have to say, I love you. I forgive you whether you forgive me or not. Do you get it? Yeah, and I do. I do love them. Good. I love them very much. And I do. I, I pray that, you know, someday that they will forgive me because it's, you know, they, um, these people that I am talking about, I really do care about and I really do love them. And I feel like my backsliding portrayed something completely, totally different from that, obviously. And, sure. um, you know, because I, it got to the point where we were quoting scriptures at each other and, you know, and telling each other how wrong we are in God and, and those kinds of things. And obviously I, I see now where that's wrong and we should, we should always love each other in God and, you know, forgive one another and, and be in unity if we say that we're the body of Christ. And I get that now. And I just, I pray that someday, you know, I will, I will be believed, I guess. Amen. I'm trying to say. That's all you can do, my sister. Thanks for watching. Thank you so much. Okay. We'll talk to you later. God bless. Bye. We're going to William and Kearns, first time caller who's LDS. William, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. Hey, William. How's it going? First Good. time caller. I've been watching your show for a long time. Uh, I am LDS. I just had a quick question. I've been talking a lot to friends, and uh, one guy told me that uh, there's a lot of similarities between the Mormons and the Masons, Freemasons, 
And one of the questions, or what he told me was, he was like, yeah, so uh, that's who killed him, was the Masons, the Freemasons. Yeah. And when we're growing up, you know, in the LDS church, they talk about the angry mob that was always after them. And that makes a lot of sense to me, because he, I guess he used Freemasonry in his uh, rituals in his church. I was just wondering if what you thought about that, or if yeah. there's any truth to that. Okay, first and foremost, Mormonism is related best to masonry in two ways. One, their temple rituals, and two, their idea of taking man and helping him progress and get better and better in his flesh and self. That is both, both of those things Mormonism borrowed from masonry. Second point about masonry. Uh, there was a man named William Morgan who had a wife, and he was going to reveal the secrets of masonry way back in the 1820s. Uh, William Morgan was discovered by the Masons to have done, was, to, uh, was, had plans to do this, and they took him and they killed him. This was the beginning of the end of the popularity of Masonry in America today. Yeah. His wife, his widow, who he left behind, was one of Joseph Smith's first polygamous wives. The, the, second, the third thing about polygamy and, uh, I mean, about Masonry and Mormonism is that Joseph Smith in Nauvoo allowed a Masonic temple to be there. He went through, he reached the highest enlightened degree, 33rd degree, I believe, at that point in a matter of days. And then six weeks, four weeks later, he produced the, the LDS Mormon temple ceremony. Oh. So, uh, and in terms of were they the ones who killed him, it's speculation. Some believe it was, uh, was them. Some believe it was just an angry mob fearing the Mormons and all their marching around in military and saying they're going to take over the world. And some believe it was actually LDS members who were tired of Joseph Smith's revelations on polygamy and, 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 and be, being uh, or, ordained king of the world and uh, all that stuff. And so that they actually killed him. And that, some even say Brigham Young was behind it and got it going and he left town so they could do the job. All of it's speculation. We don't really know who did it. Yeah. Huh. Okay? All right. Hey, thanks. Thanks for putting that up. Hey, William. Thanks for calling. Yep. Okay, right. bye. Bye. Listen, uh, I've had a number of conversations of late uh, about Christian television uh, versus network TV, and, and a lot of people don't understand this. Network, non-Christian television shows, like you watch CBS, NBC, uh, whatever, they have shows on their stations, and those shows are free to the people who produce them. Those networks gain their money through advertising dollars, okay? In Christian TV, it is not that way. In Christian television, you... Uh, the, the, the shows and the producers of the shows have to pay the networks and the stations to be on the air. That is why on Christian television you have uh, teachers and pastors and preachers, some of them charlatans, some of them not. But they will say, hey, if you want to support this ministry, uh, please do. And it's because that's how they're able to survive. It's not that we are ever paid by a, a, a station. We've even had the largest Christian network in America and most powerful come to us and say, we love your show. We want you to be on our network. And we said, okay, what do we need to do? And they said, give us five grand a week. So, you know, and we said, well, you know, there's a, there's a problem with that. So that's how Christian TV works versus network. Uh, if you want to help support us, consider this next message.
appreciate everybody for their prayers, for their volunteerism, for telling people about the show, and for financial contributions if the Lord leads and you're in a position to do it. And that's always the qualifier with our program. Listen, we have Destiny in Murray, Utah, first-time caller. Destiny, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, so let me turn down the Okay. Key. Hold on. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Hey, I, I have a question for you. Um, I, I actually, I came out of Mormonism about ooh, eight, nine years ago, and I have a, some family members that are Mormon, and I and another person, another friend I know that's Mormon, he uh, just keeps throwing questions at me. One of them I, I don't know how to answer. Um, in Exodus, it says the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Mm-hmm. And then later on, you know, in the New Testament, it says, or you know, it says that no man has seen God's face and lived. So and he, his 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 whole thing that he throws at me is. Um, that it says, you know, that, that God spoke to, to Moses face-to-face, and, and it says that Joseph Smith did, too. So I, I kind of don't know how to answer that. It, it's, it's, a, it's a really uh, good point the LDS bring up and use it to their advantage. Uh, remember, the premise that they start from is the Bible is not trustworthy, and this is one of the evidences that they use. You okay. see, okay, so you can start from that premise in his thinking. The second thing is to remember the Old Testament, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, and in the Old Testament, they spoke in Hebraisms. And we also know that the Old Testament describes God as having wings. We, we know it, it describes him as having back parts. These are anthropomorphic uh, uh, descriptions that the Hebrews used to articulate exactly what happened. Can I speak God, to God face to face standing right here? Absolutely. Lord, help this ministry. Help our caller on the air right now. That is face to face. My face to his. He, I believe he is there. So what, what else could they say? As a, and, and Moses spoke to the Lord. Uh, and it, it's, a, it's a personal Hebra- Hebraism that shows it was intimate and it was in the heart. You cannot have one scripture that says, no man has seen God at any time and have another one that says, and the Lord saw, uh, and Moses spoke to the Lord face to face and, and say that, um, have one eliminate the other. One of them is going to be stronger than the other. So if we have a verse that says, no man has, and Jesus said this, no man has seen uh, uh, God we have to then reinterpret how the Old Testament and how those Jews were writing these things. And we can find all sorts of evidences that show that they struggle for words and they use Hebraisms to describe the communications that they had with him. Uh, Hebrews says that God is a consuming fire. Colossians says that Jesus came and embodied in flesh to reveal the invisible God. Joseph Smith said that he saw God the Father in a body of flesh and bone. And we know that Jesus also said that God is a spirit. And so what we have is, yes, this one is a little bit more messy that you have to kind of sort through with them. But you have to realize we take the word of God seriously. And if we study it contextually, you will find that these are Hebraisms and I'm doing it injustice. All you got to do is go, uh, for instance, look up on uh, line and just find a good Bible uh, scholar who can answer these questions and uh, they'll be able to do it with even greater detail. But that would be the way I would approach it. 
Well, I appreciate I appreciate you much, and I appreciate the work you're doing, and God bless you. Thanks. Let me say so one. Much. Let me say one more thing, Destiny. Okay. When an LD, a Latter Day Saint uses this, you you have to be able to say, and they're not going to believe you. You have to be able to say, Joseph Smith. It wasn't until 13 years after this event supposedly happened that he saw God. 13 years later, he wrote about it. And he, and he has different versions about it. At first, he said he just saw one. Then he saw spirits. Then he saw lights. And finally, when he had evolved in his carnate mind, he finally came up with God being in a body and that he saw him. So really, that's the real problem with your friend's argument is that Joseph Smith's whole thing was concocted retroactively 13 years after the fact. And it really does uh, tell him to read Grand Palmer's book, An Insider View of Mormon Origins, about the first vision, and he'll see it was a farce. Okay. Okay? Sounds awesome. And hopefully I think I'll be coming up to see you in church. Oh, well, good. So. We look forward to it. Thanks, Destiny. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Jeff says deception. Last night on the Joy Behar show, Marie Osmond said polygamy is not part of Mormonism. Wow. Thanks, Marie. Stick to Dancing with the Stars because you do not know your own religion and you're spouting off something you don't understand. And let me explain why. Mormonism believes that there are eternal laws and principles that have always existed that were not created by God, that they have always existed by, by uh, and weren't created by anybody. They've always kind of hovered here, okay? One of those principles is polygamy. Brigham Young taught it. Joseph taught it. They all taught it. It's an eternal principle. And so, this being the case, when uh, Mormonism decided not to practice it anymore, a certain group of, called FLDS today, fundamentalists, said, listen, we know from the writings that polygamy is an eternal principle that has to be practiced for a man to get into heaven. So they broke off from Salt Lake City Mormonism and they just live in these different communes and these communes are the ones who are really living true Mormonism. For political reasons, LDS Salt Lake, the one that Marie Osmond touts, they say, well, we're not going to practice it now. Do they still believe it? Absolutely they believe it. It's still in their Doctrine and Covenants. It's still preached in the Doctrine and Covenants and it's still practiced spiritually. If a man's wife dies and he's a faithful Mormon, he can take another wife and seal her to him. And if she dies, he can take another. And when he dies, those three wives will be his for eternity to help him repopulate his worlds that he'll oversee as a god. So Joy Behar, if she knew her stuff, would have been able to call Marie out on that and say, Marie, you don't know your own doctrine. You see, but, but we just take these people's words for it. Um, one final thing about that, uh, about polygamy and the eternal principles, and I can't remember what it was. Okay, Steve from Clearfield says, to reference Jeremiah 36, 27, uh, to end for Mormonisms. Okay, listen, you know that we recently moved into Salt Lake City. I want to quickly just read you a letter we delivered to 15 of our neighbors. It says, Dear Neighbor, we put it in all their mailboxes. We want to take a minute and introduce our family. Last week, we moved into that white single-story home situated at this address. My name is Sean McCraney. My wife is Mary, and our middle daughter's name is Cassidy. We came from Huntington Beach, California, where we were longtime residents, and we have two daughters still residing there. 
After nearly six years of traveling weekly from Salt Lake, uh, Orange County to Salt Lake City, we figured it was time to make the great state of Utah our permanent home. I describe who we are. I say that I'm a Christian pastor in this capacity. I believe it is a call on my life to love and serve my neighbors anytime there is a need. This means being uh, available to you, my real geographical neighbors, as well as all other peoples. With this being the case, I want to invite any of you to contact me if you ever need anything. Lifting or moving something, prayer, answering questions, or discussing the indisputable facts about Mormonism relative to biblical Christianity. If you are in despair, sorrow, or wonder about God, please do not hesitate to call. My personal phone number. As background, Mary and I were married in the Los Angeles Temple over 25 years ago and remained active in the LDS Church until 2001. That year, I requested to be excommunicated for a number of reasons of which I'm more than willing to articulate if you're interested and have since established a ministry based in Utah that reaches out to all people of all faiths or non-faiths, but especially to members of the LDS Church who are searching to know the truth about their religion relative to the Bible. And then I just go on and say, please don't uh, hesitate in coming uh, and uh, asking me questions, whatever. And uh, the response has been interesting. Uh, no one talks to us. <laughs> no, actually, uh, to the east of us, there's some very nice people. Uh, I met the husband today. They're, they're LDS, but they are very friendly. They sent their children over at, uh, with kick cookies and stuff and then at the very end uh it was funny last night they knocked on our door and uh they came in and said we just want to introduce ourselves and they brought us some nice flowers and uh ken and uh and tori and then they said uh and tori said i love your show i've been watching it for years so we have an ally on the street and uh pray and we challenge you Instead of letting the LDS go and rule the state any longer and put you in fear, uh, go and challenge your, set something to your neighbor. Send a little thing in their note and say, listen, I'm a Christian and I don't know if you have any questions about your religion, but if you do, come and talk to me. I would love to answer them for you. I'm here to pray for you and, and answer these questions so you can know the truth and the truth can set you free. I challenge you to do it. Why not? The state has controlled this thing like a theocracy since 1850. Why not? Let's get out there. I mean, let's start making some inroads here in the state. I'm a member of the state now. Let's do it. Okay? All right. Listen, got an email from Cheryl. It says, Sean, what's up with the certain commercial on your site? Uh, have you been hacked or are they a sponsor? It's a commercial for alcohol that comes up prior to one of our shows coming up, I guess. And uh, just for appearance, your show is watched by many seeking the Lord and not the bottle. She says, let me know what this is all about. Well, what's happened, and just to let you all know, we have taken all of our archive shows, 300 hours, and to have those sitting in archives takes up an enormous amount of space. So there's a thing called Blip TV, and we, have, we are uploading each of our shows to Blip TV. And in response to letting, them letting us have our shows there, and when people click on it, they come down clearer, faster, better, they preface every video with a random uh, commercial. Some are for cars, Chevy, Coca-Cola I've seen, boats I've seen, and I guess there's one, I've seen one for cat litter, and I guess there's one for alcohol. Now, there's nothing I can do about that. Uh, we could say we're not going to progress and try to improve so that you can watch the shows and, and just sit there and get antiquated and fall apart, or we can, it's part of the fallen world. So if people tune in and they see something like that, just understand we're not endorsing it. It's just part of being in this world, part of being on television, and trying to stay alive. Uh, one last thing quickly. A good friend of mine, Dave, really had a discussion with LDS about 
this app I talked about last week. The application being the bishops all have an app and they're able to find all kinds of things out and they've been raiding members, I said, and the information I got said that they were. Well, the LDS people in management uh, uh, software are responded to David who got online and started talking about it and said, you're out of your mind, this isn't true, and said it wasn't uh, possible. Uh, however, there are a couple things that you need to consider. And so let me just say this. I want you to know that I could have been wrong. If I'm wrong, I am sorry. I take it back. If the information I was given is incorrect, my apologies. Uh, we want to base everything we can on truth here. If it's my opinion, we'll tell you it's our opinion. But my apologies if it's not true. However, uh, one guy said there is no management interface for tracking individual members. But another guy said sometimes there is confidential information passed. If the member has gone through disciplinary counsel or has had action taken against them for their membership, the bishop access file for that member is tagged. Not color-coded, not red-flagged, but tagged. Like there's a big difference. The tag reads, please call their former bishop. Please call Salt Lake City in reference to this member. <clears throat> so that seems a little bit contradictory to me. And then another LDS defender wrote, anybody can get these LDS tools. It's right there in LDS.org. I would suggest that not anybody can get these LDS tools and that there are tools that some people have, the apostles, stake presidents, probably bishops, that other members cannot get. So let's not try to paint it like that. All I know is there is an app there. I don't know who produced it, but it does reveal and it is used to assess a member and their standing in the church. Now, they can say, it's just for protection, fine. I can agree with that. But I would say, having been LDS 40 years, it's also used to quantify and qualify every single person that steps in the ward boundaries. Join us next week, our 300th show here at TV20. Uh, everybody is welcome, but get here early. We're going to have door prizes. We're going to have cake. We're going to have uh, uh, get-togethers ad nauseum. And we're going to have a fine list of people joining us. Uh, Sandra Tanner, Doris Hansen, <coughs> Bill McKeever, Rowney Higley, uh, Tim Oliver. I'm sorry I don't have the list in front of me. I've forgotten you. Uh, but come in and enjoy this time with us. And then afterwards, we're going to meet at Denny's on 5th South in Salt Lake City from 1030 to midnight if you want to join us there. Also, go to www.mormonxmormonfiles.com. Dot TV and sign up for our coming show. We love you and we'll see you next week. Mm.